Our message today continues our series on love letters from God. And as I mentioned, next week we will not be continuing the series. But our key verse for the series is John 3:16, and then we will read from 1 Samuel chapter 15 verses 12 to 23. John 3:16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Samuel 15, 12 to 23 says, Early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice, and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. As we have learned about the children of Israel in these weeks of messages from the Old Testament, we have repeatedly seen that God will tell them to do something, and they will find ways to work around it. Samuel, 1 Samuel, is the first half of what was once a larger book. It was all just called Samuel. But now 2 Samuel is the second half. Someone said, wow, this is really long and broken into two pieces. And the first half essentially tells the story of the last judge of Israel who becomes a prophet and his dealings with the first and second kings in Israel. Because Samuel is a judge for most of his adult life, but Israel begs for a king. 
They want someone to lead them into battle, to take on the tough decisions, to be their representative. They want to be just like all the other nations around them. And Samuel says, but, but that's a bad idea. It's, it's terrible. Things happen when you have a king. Kings demand tribute. Kings want you to give yourself over to them. Kings are not always kind. Kings will take your sons to war and your daughters as their bride, and you will have no say in it. But the people said, no, we want a king. We want to be just like those guys. You ever had your kids come to you and say, uh, I want to go to so-and-so's party, or I want this thing. And you're like, eh, I don't think that's a good idea for you. And your kid is like, but Johnny's mom lets them. That's exactly what the Israelites are doing. But, but the Philistines have a king. Why can't we have one? And God says, you know what? This is what you want. You shall have a king. He tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. Because Samuel's been leading them for a really long time. What he says is, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They have said they don't want God as their king. They want another king. So, Samuel seeks God's choice for who that king should be. And God chooses Saul. Saul is chosen... And at the anointing ceremony, he hides behind luggage. And Samuel has to point him out to people to come out so he can be anointed as king. He's terrified of the responsibility of leading the people. But you can see from the passage of scripture we read this morning that Saul didn't stay so terrified of leading the people. In fact, this is the second time that Samuel has had to call Saul out for disobeying a direct order from God. The first time, Saul was in, uh, had been in a battle. He got done with the battle, and he had all his men there, and he was waiting for Samuel to show up to sacrifice the animals for worship. And Saul said, you know what? I'm really tired of Sam waiting for Samuel to come and, and show the men how wonderfully we did. You see how this is not exactly a God thing happening here? And he says, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do the sacrifice for him. Now you see, you would think, well, you know, Sam Saul's just trying to lead worship. He's, you know, he's doing, he's doing the right thing. But see, it's not about leading worship. It's about what the object of the worship is. And Saul's point wasn't to worship God. That's what he said. That's what he made it look like. But it was really about, look at me. I got this done. And when Samuel got there, he said, what in the world is wrong with you? You are not doing this right. And he warned him at that point that 
things were going to get bad if he didn't start to change his ways. So then we come to the passage we read today. Earlier, what, what we kind of, beginning of chapter 15, God specifically tells Saul how to handle the Amalekites. The Amalekites had actually fought against the Israelites in a war, and God had pronounced judgment on them at that point in time, right after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And he had said that he was going to destroy them completely. Now, Saul comes to them, and he has been given the order to actually carry out God's judgment against these people. So he completely disobeys. <laughs> and he again, he again says, well, hang on. I, I didn't do it for me. I, I, didn't, I, didn't disobey. I didn't disobey for me. I was doing it for God. Can't you see? I, I pulled out all the best stuff. It, it, wasn't, for, it wasn't for me. It was for God. And, and God says through Samuel, no, that it's exactly not what it was. This was about you proving that you could do what you wanted to do and get away with it. Now, in a couple weeks, when we talk about David, we're going to see how David also screwed up. But we're going to see the difference in his response. I don't want to give too much away, you know, just in case you haven't read 2 Samuel. But I'm going to tell you, David's response was completely different. And it's in the response that we find what it is that is going on here. Because Saul's response tells us everything we need to know. He actually says to Samuel something he says, we've, we've kept back the best to worship your God at Gilgal. And you see, that's the thing that is the heart problem for Saul. He is, he is distancing himself from who God is. And he sort of put himself in the throne and said, well, I've gotten this far. Obviously, this is where I'm meant to be. Obviously, this is how I'm meant to, to do things. Go worship your God with the best of the things that I've deigned to give him. It's a heart problem. It's a... It's a moment where Saul has decided that he has the wherewithal to take control over his own life, and not only his own life, but the lives of the Israelites that are under his power. And he has said, I'm in charge. And God says, oh, no, you didn't. Uh, back that truck up. Because I'm actually in charge. Saul has done what the Israelites have continually been warned about. 
He has become so enamored with what God has blessed him with, the victories over enemies, the wealth that he's accumulated through that process, that he has figured out to himself, he's determined that they are of his own making. And he demands the people's praise. There's a story in the Gospels that tells of a rich man who comes to Jesus and asks about eternal life. And Jesus tells him to sell all he has and give everything to the poor. And the man walks away sad because he has been given so much. He has accumulated so much. And Jesus says at that point that it is harder for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now that admonishment doesn't mean that if you have wealth, you're not going to get to Jesus. What it means is That if you have accumulated blessings, you have to be really, really careful and really, really intentional to remember that those blessings don't come from you. And that even with those blessings, you still need God. You could have all the wealth in the world but you still need Jesus. And the reality is we can see it in our world really plainly that that happens. You think about people like Robin Williams or uh, some of these young actors who have so much. They have all of the wealth. They have all of the accolades. People tell them they're great. And they can't even see it. All they see is darkness. Now, in some instances, there is a mental illness problem that is also happening there. And I am not saying that just because you follow Jesus, you can't have a mental illness, because I don't believe that. What I do believe is that if you have Jesus, you have the ability to see hope more clearly. Because it's not the wealth that gives you that hope. It's not the accolades of other people that gives you that hope. It's following Jesus. It's surrendering the throne of your heart from yourself and saying it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And I'll confess, there are some days and some weeks when I have to remind myself of that. Because just because you're a pastor doesn't mean that you get absolved of all of these kinds of temptations that come into your life. 
And it's really easy for me to come up here on a Sunday morning and stand here and be like, when there's a big, bigger crowd of people and say, look at, look at what I did. But that's not how this happens. That's not how God works. And in fact, for us, the reality of God's blessing isn't so much the accumulation of things or or people who attend a service. It is actually the presence of God in our lives. That is actually God's biggest blessing. If you listen to some of these uh, prosperity preachers who tell you that if you follow Jesus, Jesus is going to bless you with everything you ever wanted in all of your life, that is false. Jesus doesn't bless you that way. Jesus' blessing looks like Jesus walking with you through whatever you're going through. So that if you are having a difficulty with your children, or you're having difficulty with your health, or you're having difficulty with your job or with your money, it's not about you didn't have enough faith. It's about Jesus saying, I see you. I see the problems that you have. And I'm going to walk with you through that. That's the blessing of God. And it's when we see that blessing for what it is that we remember that we don't have to control it. When we turn it back over, when we say to God, you can have this, God says, okay. So, you know, I may not fix this the way you want me to. I may not do it the way that you have in your head that I should do it. But... I'm going to walk with you. You know, in in Psalm 23, God, we read David's psalm, and it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God swoops in and steals me out of it. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's the blessing of God. His actual presence with us throughout our day-to-day, throughout everything we go through. I don't know about you, if you aren't on Facebook, maybe you don't know this, but there's a lot of times when people will post about some really good day that they've had or some really good thing that's happened in their life. And they put the little number sign. It's called hashtag. Then they say blessed. I'm going to tell you something. Hashtag blessed fits better when you say, man, I am having a really, really hard day. But I see Jesus. Today sucks. Hashtag blessed. 
a post-it. Because it's on those days, the hardest days, when you see Jesus more clearly, when you know he is with you, that's the blessing. And that's what Saul was missing out on. He could not see that having God's presence was the big thing. And what he's going to discover in the rest of 1 Samuel is that God's blessing gets taken away from him. The Holy Spirit is pulled out of him, and he is miserable for the rest of his days. And at the end of his life, he commits suicide on a battlefield because he cannot see how anything can get better. And he pursues David, who is the next king, before all of that, because he sees that David has what he didn't, or what he gave up. The presence of God on his life. And you see, we can all have God's presence in our life by saying, God, you take this. God, you take control of everything that's happening in my life. You rule the roost. We can all have that. And we can all give it back by saying, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this. You know what? You can, you can have all of these things, but I'm going to take my job because that's that I'm really good at that. You can have all of these things, but I'm going to take my money because my money is my money. Is my money. You didn't earn that, God. It's mine. You can have all of, you can have all of these things, God, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep my parenting. I'm gonna keep my kids. I, I need my I need to hold on to them. I can't I can't let you have them. That's too hard. But you see, when we give them all back. When we say, God, you can have all of them, we get to say we have God's blessing on our lives. God's continual working presence in our lives and in our hearts is what makes it so that everything we do is done with the focus of God's kingdom. Not our own little fiefdom. Not the kingdom of Jennifer. I'd like it to be about me. (laughs) But I really wouldn't. Because when it's about me, things fall apart. And not only do they fall apart, but God's presence is not part of what's happening. So I ask you today, as we get ready to go through our discussion about what it looks like to say that the love of God is found on every page of Scripture, I ask you to think about the fact that maybe you have some little things that are kingdoms in your life, little kingdoms that you're not willing to let God sit on the throne of. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's your health. 
Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your garden. I don't know. Maybe it's a feeling you have about someone that you're not willing to give away. Maybe you're really mad at somebody who hurt you and you can't let that go. I'm going to ask you today, before we're going to go through our our discussion of what it means to say that the love of God is found in every page of Scripture, but we're going to go to our communion service and we're going to do it just a little bit different. We're not going to go through the full liturgy the way that we normally do. But what I'm going to ask is that you come to the front pew and you sit up here and you think about for a moment what areas maybe you need to say, God, I need your presence in this area. And as I hand out the bread... You hold on to that bread and you say, as I take this today, I'm giving you this kingdom, God. And then we'll do, I'll pass the cup and you'll have an opportunity to take your bread. But I'm going to ask us to leave in silence after we take communion today. No benediction, no closing prayer. I'm just going to ask us to come to the front, participate quietly, because we need to be surrendering those kingdoms every single time we get a chance to think about it. Because the truth be told, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will survive. And the kingdom of heaven is us working for God's purposes here today. And we can only do that if we give him all of our kingdoms first. I'm going to read this to you. Then I'm going to ask you when I get to the end to come and sit at the front pew. What does it mean to say that God loves? God loved us enough to create us, to form us from the dust. God loved us enough to let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back, through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. God loved us enough to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. God loved us enough to send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. God loved us enough to see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. 
God loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like him. And God loved us enough to want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. God loved us enough to still let us choose our destiny. God loved us enough to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead and judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world, God loves you. And God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week, most tangibly, as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.